You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join him now. We're going to finish our series in 1 Thessalonians this morning. We're going to look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. Next week we will start a new series in the book of Luke. Excited about that. Uh, You can read ahead. We'll be in Luke chapter 1. In this passage, Luke, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 28, Paul closes the letter by giving us several exhortations, just almost like a shotgun of exhortations, of encouragements. And these exhortations are are really varied, and, and they relate to every aspect of our Christian life. And so, um, it, it should be uh, good for all of us. There should be something here for every one of us. I, I think I would be astounded and amazed if, if we were able to leave here this morning and not say, you know what, that, that was for me. I need to hear that. Because these things are, are so varied and, and they're, they're convicting. Paul says, and we urge you, brethren, verse 12, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sakes, be at peace among yourselves. And so the first exhortation that Paul gives is really in relationship to leadership in the church. And I kind of struggled as I was preparing this this week as I thought, geez, this is going to be kind of self-serving. You know, how am I going to talk about this? And, but the reality of it is, is that I'm just one of, of many leaders in the church. One of many that are laboring among you. One of many that are working for your sake. He says, we urge you. This is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't something that maybe you ought to think about. This is something that we should be doing. We urge you, brethren, to recognize uh, the word... Uh, speaks of respect. It, it speaks of um, understanding the calling that God has placed on certain men and, and certain women to lead and, and to hold that position, to recognize those who labor among you, who work hard. And notice that Paul doesn't say, recognize those who have a title. He says, recognize those who labor among you. And are over you in the Lord. And admonish you. So first of all he says recognize those who are laboring. You recognize their position. You recognize the fact that they're over you. Because they're laboring. Not because they have a title. And that's why we don't really make a big deal about titles here. And we don't really uh, just make a big deal about um positions and and who's over who and that kind of stuff because you're going to know simply by who's working among you who's laboring who's spending their time and their energy which we don't have a lot of and most of the people in our leadership are volunteers and they're laboring among you they're working 40 50 60 hours a week and then giving of their time for you And Paul says you need to recognize them. Now obviously, you guys recognize me. I'm up here every week and it's not hard to 
to recognize me. But that doesn't mean that you're respecting the, the, the authority and the leadership that God has set up. It doesn't mean that, that there's an esteeming, as he says in verse 13, to esteem them very highly. And so on one hand, we don't make a big deal about titles and about position. But on the other hand, Paul does. Paul says, you need to be recognizing them. You need to be esteeming them very highly, honoring them. Now, I don't think that means you need to insert a title before people's name. You know, people call me Pastor Ryan. Hey, whatever. It's cool. I don't care. I kind of just prefer Ryan, you know. It's what I've always been called. So I don't need pastor in front of my name to validate who I am. We, We don't need a name tag that says Elder John or whatever. Nobody needs to be called that. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. He's saying, respect them, honor them by allowing them to lead you. By allowing them to have that position in your life based upon the calling that God has given to them. And in this culture that we live in today, it's all about questioning authority. And it's all about living individualistic lives where I don't need anybody. And... And we, we at this church, we, we try to emphasize, and, and I, it's regularly that I'm talking about this, that, that church is not somewhere that you go, it's who we are. And it isn't this building, it's wherever we are at. But the fact of the matter is, is that we can carry that to the extreme that says, I don't need to have spiritual authority in my life, because I'm the church, and I, where it's where I'm at. And so I don't need to have a pastor. I don't need to have leadership in my life. And Paul would say the exact opposite here, that you need to esteem them, that you need to recognize those that labor among you. And again, it's those that labor. Just because somebody has a title doesn't mean that you ought to recognize them. And it's again why here at Calvary, we don't just give people titles simply because we want to fill a hole. We don't give people titles because Oh, they have potential. We want to simply recognize what God is already doing in that person's life and how he's using them. And then just to come alongside and ratify that and say, you know what? You're already leading. You're already laboring. And so we're not going to give you a title in hopes that you'll do it. We're going to just simply come alongside and recognize what God's already doing. And so if you have a desire to be in spiritual leadership, which the Bible says is a good desire. If you have a desire, then just start doing it. And your gifts will make room for you. And God will raise you up and God will use you. And so we, you guys, we recognize those that are laboring, those that are doing the work. And there are many, not just the elders in our church, who are just a group of great guys. And you see them humbly serving They all work jobs. They all have families. They're giving their time for you. Not just the elders, but the deacons and the deaconesses who serve just in amazing ways, giving of their their time and their energy. Like I said, most of the things that happen here are done on a volunteer basis. And I think it's easy to come and to see everything is just taken care of and to not recognize those people, to not esteem them very highly in love. 
for their works' sake, for what they're doing. And we, we consider our, our deacons and deaconesses to be those that oversee ministries. And we have children's ministry, and we have youth ministry, and, and we have seniors ministry, and we have many, many ministries within the church. The Oasis, evangelism, helping hands, and <coughs> meals ministries. And these people are laboring among you. People that come in and clean the church. And it's easy to take it for granted of these things that are just taken care of and you don't notice. And it's probably good that you don't notice. It's just like the audiovisual. If you notice it, it's probably because something's going wrong. And so a lot of these things that just happen very smoothly, it's easy to, to fail to recognize those things. And those people can begin to feel like they're not appreciated and they're not being recognized and, and the enemy can get in there and they think, what am I even doing? I'm not a blessing to anybody. I'm not really bearing any fruit. Nobody seems to care. And you can come along and you can encourage those people. And I, and I like Paul, exhort you to do that. And one of the greatest ways that we can recognize and esteem the leaders and the servants in the body is by being at peace among ourselves. I'll tell you one of the things that bums me out the greatest is, is division in the body. When I hear about people that are at each other's throats, they're ticked off about this, they're gossiping, they're not coming to church because somebody said this or somebody didn't invite them over or they invited them and they never had them and they didn't invite him to be friends on Facebook. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> and, and it's a bummer. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. You know, I say this to my kids all the time, and I think it would be even more applicable to the church when my kids come to me and they're fighting. And they're, they're like, you know, Carson took my pen, and Carson's stealing my computer time, or Carson did this, or Caitlin did that. Caitlin hit me. Caitlin said I was stupid. And you know what I'll say to him? Figure it out. Figure it out. You guys are old enough to figure this out. And that's what I would say to you. Figure it out. What in the world? We know Jesus, the author of peace, the prince of peace. And you're ticked off because somebody looked at you weird or they didn't say hi to you in the hall or they didn't invite you back over. Come on. Come on. Figure it out. That's what Paul would say to us. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. In the first section there, Paul talked about relating to leaders. Now Paul is talking about relating to difficult people. Now here's the thing about being a difficult person is that you don't know it. It's the bottom line, isn't it? Every difficult person I've ever known thinks they're God's gift to society. Meanwhile, they're a complete idiot. But they don't recognize it. They don't recognize it. They're prideful. They're stubborn. They just take, 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 and they never give. They say hurtful things. 
They talk about themselves all the time and, and never think to, to even think about somebody else other than, but they never notice it because all of those things lend itself to never noticing it. And Paul says, this is how you need to deal with difficult people. Warn those who are unruly. Warn them. And, and this word unruly, it's kind of a difficult word. Uh, many think that it means those that are lazy those that are idle, and it could go back to chapter 4 when, when Paul was talking about working with your own hands, aspiring to lead a quiet life. But the, the word really is, is just those that are insubordinate, those that don't want to listen to anybody, those that, that don't want to have authority over them, and they want to do whatever seems right to them. Paul says, warn them. And the idea of warning is, is a loving rebuke. Not screaming and yelling, not telling them that you hate the fact that they come to your church, not telling them to get out of your life and you don't ever want to talk to them again. Just warning them, lovingly. Warning those that are unruly, those that are idle, those that are lazy, those that are off track in their walk with God. Warn them. Are, are you willing to warn people? Are you willing to, to say something to somebody that might temporarily make them not like you very much? See, our tendency is to just write people off and just to be like, you know what? I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. I'm not going to answer the phone when they call. Thank God for caller ID. You know, I'm, and then the people are leaving messages like, I've called you four times, you don't answer, you know. That's our tendency, just to shine them on, just be like, you know what, forget you, dude. And when I see him coming, I'll go the other way. But Paul says, warn them. Are you willing to do that and have them not like you, have them talk about you? That's what you have to be willing to do, to warn. It means that you have to be willing to, to confront people. And for some of us, that's not that easy to do. But Paul says you need to do that. He says, comfort the faint-hearted. This means to, to come alongside those that are down, that are discouraged, that are struggling, the faint-hearted. And I think that's a good picture. Just those that are tired, those that are weak, those that are depressed, they're failing of heart. He says, comfort them. And I'll tell you, for me, it's easy for me to do this like one or two times for anybody. I'll comfort the faint-hearted all day long a couple times. But when that person begins to be like a pattern of just, I mean, I got words in my mind I probably shouldn't use. But when that person just is like, oh, will you get over yourself? I'm done. It's like, you know what? Andrea, your turn. You know, somebody else, I can't, I can't do this anymore. This person's driving me insane. And it, I'm sure a lot of you are like that. Like one or two times. But if every time I talk to somebody, they're just like ready to commit suicide, I'm thinking like, where's the gun? You know, let's just get this over with. I mean, my goodness. Because... That's just the way I, that I'm built. It's like, let's just power through. But not everybody's like that. And some people are faint-hearted. And so I have to be patient. 
as Paul says at the end of this verse, be patient with all. I have to be patient with those people. My personality isn't that way. My personality wants to just kind of shake them into reality and say, come on, man, buck up. What's the big deal? And it doesn't come easy for me. Some of you it comes easier to because you're more of a merciful person. And I need merciful people around me. And if you're a a merciful person that just never can challenge anybody and you're just kind of like jello, you know, you need people that can challenge others around you. And so comfort the faint-hearted. Notice Paul doesn't say one or two times until you get tired of them and then ignore them and hope they don't come your way. He says, no, comfort the faint-hearted continually. Man, that's challenging for me. Uphold the weak. This is the idea of just holding somebody in your arms that's struggling, that's hurting. Uphold them. Lift them up. Not only physically, Sometimes you just got to hold somebody and love them and, and let them know that somebody cares. But spiritually, lift them up to the Lord. Pray for them. Uphold the weak. And see, this is all about relationship, which is what the body of Christ is all about. Just like your body, it works together. It doesn't work against itself. And when it does, that's called cancer and it has to be rooted out. The body is not supposed to work against itself. It's supposed to work for itself. Every part having a function. And that's what the church is all about. The church isn't about programs. It's not about how many people we can get into the building. It's not about how nice of a building we have. It's not about impressing people. It's not about going to the coolest hip church so that you can be attached to that. Church is who we are wherever we're at, and it's about people, relationships, you guys. And in this culture, we don't even understand what relationships are anymore in a lot of ways. And it's easy for us to think that we're all about relationships because we have 200 friends on MySpace or on Facebook or we talk to people on the internet, chat rooms. That's not relationship because you can turn it off at any time. And believe me, I I blog a lot and I've got a lot of friends on blogs and on the internet. People I've never even met before. But the reality of it is, I can just turn it off. And if somebody bothers me, I can just be like, you know what? You're like a pseudonym on the internet anyway. Who cares? But in reality, in real life, which is what that has tried to replace, you can't do that. Or you shouldn't do that. And so you need to have real relationships that challenge you and make you better. And that's what church is all about. Relationship. Connecting with with people as you connect with Jesus together. And I love, be patient with all. And the reason that Paul can say be patient with all is because God is so patient with us. That's our example. Look at the way that Jesus dealt with people When he was here on the earth, so patient, so loving, so kind. I mean, some of the stuff the disciples said to Jesus, I mean, I would have just been like, you're done. Okay, Peter, you're done. I thought I could like hand this off to you, but you're done. I'm sorry. It's not going to work. But Jesus is so patient, so kind, so long-suffering. 
I mean, he could have come back a long time ago, poured out his wrath on the Christ-rejecting world, destroyed it all, started over. He hasn't done that because he's so patient. And again, I'm not patient. I'm fairly impetuous. I'm, I'm easily irritated. And Paul says, be patient with all. Not be patient with those that you really like, but be patient with all. And the reason that, that we lack patience is because we lack understanding. And we lack the right perspective. And if we just had that more, if we truly understood where people were coming from a little bit more, we could understand why they are the way they are. And it would help us to have patience with people. But ultimately, you guys, patience comes from relating to God. And when we relate to Him properly, we receive His patience and it helps us to be patient. When we see that God is patient with us, See, my lack of patience a lot of times is my failure to recognize how patient God is with me. And it's, it's my arrogance and my pride that, that basically feels like, you know what, I'm perfect. And why aren't all you people perfect? That's kind of where it comes from, doesn't it? But when we truly get before God and we say, God, help me to be patient and Lord, give me the, the wisdom and God, give me the understanding. God starts to reveal things to you. Like, you know how you've been struggling with that same sin for like 15, 20 years now and I've been forgiving you? Yeah, I've been patient with you, haven't I? Yeah. But this is different, Lord. This guy's an idiot. You know what I mean? And God just begins to reveal to us that we don't have it all together either. And that's where patience can come from. And so relating to leaders, Paul tells us, you ought to recognize them and esteem them. Relating to difficult people, you need to warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And then see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. This is how you deal with difficult people. Don't take vengeance. That's hard to do because our nature wants to get back at people and it feels good. And that's why all these movies where someone has been wronged and then they go out and get retribution. I mean, just think of them. They're rolling through your mind right now. Braveheart. You know, all the Mel Gibson movies. Right? He's always playing one of those guys. The Patriot. Ransom. I mean, I, I, he's just like the poster child for retribution. And... It's, it's what we like. I mean, I've told this story before, uh, but it, it just, it always hits me. I remember when I was just starting to, to go to church. 15 years old, never had been at a church, and I was going to youth group. And our youth pastor was showing the Jesus movie over the course of a couple weeks. And I remember watching the scene where Jesus is being beaten and tortured, and I was just thinking, like, any time now, this guy is going to just go, you know, he's going to go nuts on him. He's going to pull out an Uzi. He's going to start throwing knives, because that's how I had been patterned. I mean, he's going to win, and he did win, just not in the way I thought he would. See, and that's the thing, you guys. You think you're going to win by going and getting retribution. You think that you're going to defeat that nasty neighbor by doing something twice as bad to them as what they've done to you. But you always lose. 
And if you would just patiently love them and point them to Jesus, you will be the victor. And I remember when my neighbor, the people that live outside of our, our neighborhood, but they are our neighbor actually, they, they tried to make my life miserable and it's kind of a long story, but I had all of these plans of what I was going to do. I mean, I thought, there's, there's a million things I could do. I'm going to put up a sign that says, we'll take broken junk vehicles free right here. Just park them. And I'm going to line my property with broken down vehicles. You know, I thought of just putting like four by eight sheets of plywood up all the way along their, my property line and their property line, just paint them like weird colors and... You know, and, and for some of you animal lovers, I won't even tell you what I thought of doing to their animals. <laughs> I mean, I had all kinds of ideas. Was not short on ideas of what I could do. And every time an idea would come to my mind and I would start to plot and to plan how I could pull that off, the Lord would just be like, what are you doing? Come on. Just love them. Just be patient with them. Don't render evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Pursue what is good. Look for the good. See, we always look for the bad. We always look for the the things that irritate. Begin to look for the good in people. Even that parent that you struggle with. Look for the good. Then Paul goes on to talk about relating to our spiritual life. He's talked about leadership in the church and and how we ought to relate to them. He's talked about relating to difficult people. And then he talks about our spiritual life in verses 16 to 24. Just some, some rapid fire exhortations. He says, rejoice always. Be joyful always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Always have joy. Again, I think I read that and I go, really? Always have joy? How is that even possible? Well, it isn't possible when your joy is rooted in your circumstances. When joy is rooted in your circumstances, you'll be joyful maybe 10% of the time. And that's on a good day. But when joy is rooted in Jesus and what he did for you, and it's beyond your circumstances, and when joy is rooted in others' success, think about that. Think about that for a second. Right now, some of you are, are just struggling financially. But you know what? Others are doing okay. Do you rejoice in that? You can find joy in that. When you're going through difficulty, do you find joy in others who are succeeding, in others that are doing well? See, when we don't have joy, it's because we're focused on ourselves. We're not focused on Jesus and we're not focused on others. Because guaranteed... If I began to focus on Jesus and I began to focus on others and their difficulties or their successes, I would find joy. I would find joy in serving people and I would find joy in others' success. But because I'm so prideful and selfish, I only find joy in my good circumstances, not in yours. That's how we can always have joy. That's how we can rejoice always is when we're focused on Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and on eternity. That never changes. It doesn't ever 
change. And so we can always find joy. It's a never-ending supply of joy. Or when I focus on others and the work God's doing, people are getting saved here at Calvary. We can find joy in that. People's lives are being transformed. We can find joy in that. We can find joy in, in a lot of things in life if we'll think about it and we'll, we'll begin to, to pay attention. But we don't because we want to feel sorry for ourselves. And Paul says, rejoice always. Focus on Jesus. Focus on others. Be filled with the Spirit. As Galatians 5.22 says, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And I mean, I get to see a lot of people and interact with a lot of people. And, and, and sometimes Christians are just the most unjoyous people on the planet. And, and, and I remember this, this guy. I won't go into detail because you'll know who he is. But this guy in town. Businessman who, who used to just give me a lot of flack. A lot of, lot of hardship. And he's a Christian guy. And one time I said to him, this is probably one of those times where I probably wasn't being patient. And he's just in my face and he's doing all kinds of stuff and just insane. And, and I said to him, I said, bro, aren't you a Christian? And, and he said, yeah. I said, where's your joy, man? I don't ever see it. And he's like, well, you know, uh, this and that. I said, look, if you're a Christian and you have joy, you ought to tell your face because apparently it doesn't know. Apparently, there's a disconnect there somewhere. Inform your face that you're a Christian. It might help. And you know what? That's, that kind of describes me a little bit too, though. I was just talking to that, to the, with this about, you know what I mean. I was just talking to Andrea about this this morning. And I'm kind of an intense guy. And I think when I smile... I look like the nicest guy in the world. When I don't, I look like an absolute jerk. It's like... And, and I, you know, I can kind of intimidate people. And so I have to remember that. Ryan, tell your face that you love Jesus. <laughs> Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Again, I read that and I say, how's that even possible? God, don't you know I'm busy? I got a lot going on. How can I pray, all, pray without ceasing? And he, here again, it's a relationship. An ongoing relationship that we have with the Lord. An ongoing conversation. And you guys, this ought to dispel any myth that God cares about your posture in prayer that God cares about your language, that God cares about if you verbalize it or not? Because how could you pray without ceasing if God cared about all those things? Would you just be on your knees 24-7? Would you be walking around town verbalizing all of your prayers? You know, people would think you're a whack job. And, and so you can be praying to God consistently and continually in your mind. That's the point, is that as you're about to go into a, a meeting maybe, and you know you, this, this could go bad, and you say, Lord, help me to just represent you. God, I pray this would go the way you want it to. And, or as you're about to go to your family for the Christmas holiday, 
and you know every year you're going to get into a confrontation with somebody. And it's like, Lord, as I go to the house of the Philistines, (laughs) God, I just pray that you'd give me love, give me patience. Lord, help me to hold my tongue. Help me not to, to lash out. God, help me not to gossip and to get involved in all that. Lord, I just want to represent you. And, and you can just be in constant conversation with the Lord. You know, it doesn't have to be hours on end of prayer. It can just be quick things as you're driving and things come into your mind. When you wake up in the middle of the night and, and you can't sleep, oftentimes it's, it's a, a sign from the Lord that he wants you to pray. And it's just an ongoing prayer life with the Lord. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. You guys, joy in prayer produce thanksgiving. If you're a person that's real negative and cynical and you're just down on life, it's because there's a lack of joy and a lack of prayer in your life. In everything, give thanks. Now, listen, Paul doesn't say for everything. Paul doesn't tell you to rejoice when a... When a child dies, does it tell you to rejoice for that? Paul doesn't say, you know what? I know your house just burned down and you lost everything. Put a smile on your face, dance a little bit, throw a party. He doesn't say that. He says, in everything, because your joy is not about the circumstance. It's beyond the circumstance. So you can have joy despite what's happening. And you can have that right now in today's economic situation you can have joy you can have joy despite relational difficulties you can have joy despite the struggles you're having with your kids you can have joy despite the difficulty that you're having with your family and with your neighbors or with your car you can find joy even though you can't spend as much as you'd like to on your kids this year we can have joy. We, we can give thanks, Paul says. We can give thanks for those things. We can be grateful in the midst of those things because we're thanking God for all that we have in him that never changes, that can't be taken away from us. Just like we're studying on Wednesday night in the life of David. We're at that point in David's life where everything was taken from him. His wealth, his position, his family, his friends, his house, his reputation. And he even had to pretend to be insane to save his life. Drooling out of his mouth and he ends up in a cave. A lonely, dark cave. And it's there he wrote Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You guys, that absolutely blows me away. Because that isn't me most of the time. I want it to be. Giving thanks for everything. In everything. In the midst of everything. Even when everything is taken away from me. Like it was David. I can give thanks. And you know what? What was proven about David in that situation and circumstance. Is that he truly did have a heart for God. Because you could take everything from David. And he still had his heart for God. 
And the opposite was true of Saul, who you could give everything. You could give him everything in the world, and yet his heart was still opposed to God, and he was still ungrateful. And so, you guys, thanksgiving and joy, it doesn't have anything to do with your circumstances. You might think, oh, if I, if I just had a job right now, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. You'd be complaining about the job. If I just made more money, it doesn't have to be a lot, Lord, just a little bit more, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be. It'd always be just another dollar an hour, just another $100 a month. That would, that would make all the difference, Lord. I wouldn't have to cut the cable. Oh, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't, because then it would be, Lord, if I just made a little bit more, then I could buy the plasma. If you're not thankful for what you have right now, you won't ever be. In everything, give thanks. Do not quench the spirit. The idea is here, don't put out the fire of the spirit. And when you think about a fire, you think of two ways that it can be put out. One is neglect, and the other is by putting a substance on the fire that retards the fire. Water, dirt, fire extinguisher. There's two ways to put out a fire. Neglect, eventually it will go out. You don't add fuel to it, it'll go out. Or if you put a substance on it that makes it go out, it'll go out. And those are the two ways you can quench the spirit in your life. Neglect. Neglect the Lord. Neglect your relationship with him. Don't pray. Don't read the word. Don't fellowship. Don't worship. Don't obey God. Don't give to him of your time, your treasures, and your talents. Just neglect the Lord and you'll quench the spirit. Or do things or don't do things that will add a substance to your life that will put out the Spirit's fire. Don't obey God. Bring sin into your life that will quench the Spirit and what He wants to do in your life. And, and quickly, you'll see that the, the, the fire, the passion for God be extinguished. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, I think in context... Verse 19 really relates to verse 20, but I think it stands alone as well. But contextually, it, it's speaking of, don't quench the spirit by despising prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. And prophecy is a, is a neglected gift in the church, and it's also very misunderstood. When we think of prophecy, we, we tend to think of like Nostradamus. You know, like predicting the future. But that isn't the biblical gift of prophecy in the New Testament necessarily. It's more of proclaiming the word of God. It's more of a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. That's, that's more what prophecy is. It's a, it's a word fitly spoken. And I think that the gift of prophecy takes place each time we open the word and we learn together. God is speaking to you prophetically. The gift of prophecy can take place at Starbucks, standing in line and listening to somebody behind you say something that just pierces your heart. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you're standing in line at the grocery store and you're listening 
to the mom scream at her kids and put them down. And all of a sudden, the Lord just speaks to you and says, that's you. And you know how ugly that is? That's what you sound like. And it's like busted. And the Lord can do that in so many different ways. But it's a word fitly spoken. It's him taking his word and piercing your heart with it. And we ought to just long for it. God, I want to hear from you. Not once in a blue moon, but consistently. And Lord, I don't want to despise it when it comes. And I'll tell you how I despise prophecy. is through the messenger. Hey, if it's somebody I respect, I'll listen all day long. I mean, I'm just soaking it up. But when it's somebody I don't respect, not so much. I despise that prophecy. I'll tell you how a pastor can despise prophecy a lot. It's when people leave the church. And they say, you know what, A, B, C, D, this is why we're leaving. And I think A, B, C, D is a load of baloney, bud. So why don't you take your A, B, C, D and head on down the road? And I just despise it. But what I should do is I should take it and think, you know what, Lord? I don't like the way it was delivered. It was arrogant. It was hurtful. But there's truth there. And I need to hear it. And you need to wade through all that stuff and... And it's kind of like wading through a, a, a sewer trying to find a diamond. And you pluck it out and you clean it off and you say, that, that was for me. And you walk away and there's a bunch of crap still there. But you got the diamond. And sometimes you have to do that. And it's not that easy to do. Believe me, it's hard to do when you don't respect the messenger. When you don't respect their life, you think... You know what, dude? Everything you're saying applies to you. You ought to turn this around. That's not the issue. The issue is you. And if you're constantly defending yourself and constantly looking to make sure that the person that is speaking to you is perfect and that they line up with all of your requirements to receive from the Lord by, you'll never hear from God. Be open-minded to who the Lord wants to speak to you through. Don't despise prophecy. But test all things and hold fast what is good. Test prophecy. Just because somebody says something to you doesn't mean it's true. And I remember in Bible college, which was like training ground for weirdos. (laughs) Right? And it was like all these guys were just in the minor leagues. Just trying to figure out, you know, their gifts and and I remember this guy going around and, and he felt like he was called to the East Coast to plant a church. And he went to this guy and he said, hey, bro, the Lord has given me a prophecy for you. Is that you're supposed to give me your Jeep and I'm going to take it and I'm going to drive to the East Coast and plant a church. And the guy said, well, look, the Lord hasn't given that to me. So when he does, I'll let you know. But that was the kind of stuff that went on. But we still need to test things. And see, there's two extremes here. There's cynicism, which despises prophecy. Being cynical. Then there's being gullible and just receiving everything that comes down the road. And somewhere in the middle is where we need to be. Don't be a cynic and despise prophecy, but don't be gullible and just receive everything as if it's straight from God. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. In other words, wade through the sewer. Test it 
And then when you find something good, take it. And if somebody gives you a prophecy that maybe is something more in the future, like God's shown me that, that you're going to be a pastor, that you're, you're going to go on the mission field or some other thing, and you're thinking, all right, don't go out and sell everything you have. Don't take that to the bank until you see it borne out over time. And then let God confirm it. And he may be using that. And I always remember the story of, of Pastor Chuck, who, who started Calvary Chapel. And, and back when they were 25 people, just started to, he just took over this little church. And somebody gave him a prophecy and said, you are going to be a shepherd of many shepherds. And Chuck kind of laughed, like, are you out of your mind? We've got 25 people. Come on. 40 years later, that prophecy couldn't be more true with 1,500 pastors under him who have come out of that ministry. And so you never know what God might bring to, to pass, but just let God work it out. Don't, don't despise it, but don't go change your life as a result of it. Just let God do it. Put it in the back of your mind and let God bring it to pass. And if he doesn't, then you say, well, that wasn't true. And if he does, you say, man, that was awesome, that word. Abstain from every form of evil. I think that speaks for itself. Abstain from every form of evil. Whatever is sinful and, and opposed to God, abstain from that in your life. And then the last section. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Paul is talking about sanctification, holiness, being set apart, living a life that's pleasing to God. And listen to what he says. He who calls you is faithful. He who justifies you, who gave you salvation, who called you out of darkness, he will do the work. He will sanctify you. It's not about you. Man, that ought to encourage you this morning. May you be sanctified completely. And you look at your life and you think, I'm not sanctified, I'm anything but holy. But he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Brethren, pray for us. A great reminder to pray for the leadership in the church. Pray for those that are hurting and struggling. Pray for your unsaved family and friends. Paul was constantly praying for people. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, in our culture, we wouldn't do this. Just would be kind of weird. Maybe ladies, but, but even that would probably be a little weird in our culture. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This could just be welcome people, love people. Show them that you care about them. Make them feel like they're important and they're special to you. Greet one another. With a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul closes the letter with grace. All of the things that he's told us that we ought to be doing, all of the things that we've been instructed in, this is how I want you guys to leave here this morning. His grace. His grace is enough. You guys, we all fail, we all blow it, and we need his grace. His grace is never ending. You'll never find the bottom of his grace. And he wants to shower that on you this morning. He wants to, to take you 
and to dunk you in his grace and to show you how much he loves you this morning. His unmerited favor toward you. I hope you leave here encouraged, not condemned. I hope you leave here in a greater understanding of how much Jesus loves you and the length that he went to prove that love, his grace. And it's his grace, you guys, that allows us to do all of the things that we talked about this morning. It's by having him at the very center of our life. And as we relate to him, we will be able to relate to others properly and we'll be able to live the life that he wants us to live. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. God, thank you for this book, 1 Thessalonians, and, and just the great challenge that it's been, Lord, and just the, the amazing life application. Lord, just the theme, hope in Jesus. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would leave in that hope, that we would leave recognizing the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, bless each one. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. If you would like to write to us or contribute to this ministry, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Or you may log on to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com. Thank you for listening and God bless.